Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Well, good morning. My name is Jacob. Um, I'm the youth pastor here at Sunrise. I get to serve with the youth. It's super fun. Um, and that means that this weekend is youth pastor weekend. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, it's going to get a little bit of uh, bumpy, so buckle up. <laughs> uh, before we start, will everybody please stand with me as we read Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as we remind ourselves what it means to be the church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Fantastic. You can have a seat. Well, I'm excited to be back. Um, it's been quite a while since I've gotten to preach up here. One, one clap. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm excited. And you know what's even more exciting is I actually get to preach out of the New Testament this time, not just the Old Testament. So we get to be Jesus-y today. Woo! I'm excited. Um, so as we start today, I have a question for you guys. Have you ever come across one of Christ's teachings as you're reading the scriptures, or maybe you're reminded of one as you're walking in your day-to-day -day life that you kind of think, like, man, I know he's calling me to that. I know this is what he says, but I'm not comfortable with that. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. Maybe you're reading about Jesus' attitude towards um, um, giving or, or spending money, and you're thinking, man, is this guy nuts? Like, give to all who beg of me? Lend to anyone who wants to borrow? Don't store up anything for myself. Has this guy taken a Dave Ramsey course? <laughs> he has not been to Financial Peace University. Maybe you're uh, reading about his attitude towards uh, marriage relationships, and you're thinking, man, he's calling me to hate my spouse for his sake. Isn't it much easier if I just hate my spouse for my sake? Um, or, or maybe you're, you're thinking, you're, you're about to marry someone, you're like, it would be so much easier if we could just live together for a little while just to see how things would be. 
Or maybe you're, you're confused about his teachings about, about gender, and you're like, man, I don't know why it matters who I like. Why can't I marry whoever I want? It's the same love, same care, same intimacy. Why does it matter? Um, maybe, maybe you're reading about um, one of the harder ones, forgiveness. Sometimes people really hurt us. And maybe Becky from work, <laughs> and you're like, man, I have to forgive Becky? I hate Becky. I'm just kidding. If, you're, if your name is Becky, I'm so sorry. I'm going to use you for a little bit here. Um, love my enemies. Pray for Becky. I have to forgive Becky 490 times before Jesus will let me tell her to kick rocks. <laughs> if you've asked these sort of questions, then congratulations. You're not checking your brain at the door when you open your Bible. Um, if these sorts of things struck us as normal, then we wouldn't have to be told to do or to not do them. If they were natural for us, then they would just be right in our hearts, right? But they're not natural for us. They push against the grain for us. They push back against our nature. There's something in us that screams, I don't get it. They ask us oftentimes to obey, and it doesn't really seem that they care whether or not we understand why we're obeying. Um, last week, we got to hear from Paul's friend Curtis, um, who comes from Alderwood Community Church in Washington, and he walked us through the last words of Stephen to the people who were persecuting him. Um, and, he, and he highlighted how we need to be a church that speaks the truth in love, but ultimately one that is willing to give up anything for the sake of Jesus. Anything and maybe everything for the sake of Jesus. Today, we're going to skip over the story of Philip. We're going to skip over the story of Paul's conversion. We're going to come and land right in Acts chapters 10 and 11, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius. And I think in Peter, we will find an example, a posture that we can hold um, for, for, for what to do when we hear something from God that we don't understand. So let's, let's turn there together. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Starts this way. In Caesarea, they're leaved. They're leaved. <laughs> oh man! All right. In Caesarea, they li there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. Now, raise your hand if you can say honestly that everyone in your household is both God-fearing and devout all the time. I, I don't think I see any hands. I live alone, and I can't say that about my household. Um, so, it says he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Um, there's, there's something, it was kind of uncommon in these times, but every once in a while you'd see it crop up, this, this, um, this phenomenon of a, a Gentile, so somebody who's not a part of Israel, who would grow some sort of an attachment, a reverence for the God of Israel. Um, and they were usually called the God-fearers or God-fearing. So that's what we see here. Cornelius is a God-fearer. Um, it goes on to say this. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. That's terrifying. I mean, think, okay, so I'm thinking like, you know, you're, you're making your Campbell's chicken noodle and soup. I live alone. Um, and what, this, this angel just materializes, like out of the wall? 
like terrifying, right? Change your pants terrifying. Also, I do think it's interesting, if we can bring the verse back, um, I do think it's interesting that Luke adds that it's three o'clock. In case anybody was wondering what time it was when this happened. It seems kind of superfluous. Like, like, I, uh, like I went to Winco yesterday and also grew a tail. It's like nobody's going to be asking me what I bought at Winco. Tell us about the tail, right? <laughs> Anyways. So it goes on and says this. This is the, what the angel says. Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? I like the politeness there. Sir? <laughs> he asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Wow, that's amazing. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So Cornelius sees this vision and he composes himself and then he sends three men to Joppa in search of two Simons, Simon squared, if you will. Now, the story jumps at this point to Joppa, and it starts following the original Simon, the OG Simon, Simon Peter. And it says this, the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, have you ever been, you know, you come home after a long day, and whoever's cooking the meal, you're like, you're, you fall into a trance because you're just that hungry? Yeah, 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 yeah this guy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not that kind of trance. We will, soon, we will soon see. He saw the sky open, <laughs> and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. So this is, uh, this is strange. We, we meet our hero with a grumbling belly, having a full-on vision on a rooftop. And also, it's noon, in case anybody's wondering. Um, and this vision, uh, the heavenly smorgasbord that's let down for Peter, is filled with gross animals. And it kills Peter's appetite. Look what he says. He says, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times, and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether the sheet was a fitted sheet or a, uh, like just a flat straight sheet. Um, I think, you know, I'm thinking through the dynamics of this. It can't be a fitted sheet because of the rounded edges. It makes it, a, it just make it a mess, right? Like, how do you, you know, but maybe that would help keep in all the critters. I don't know. The text is silent. How many times is the vision repeated? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus have to reinstate Peter? Three times. So there's this kind of calling card of sequences of three in Peter's relationship with Jesus. Also, this might need some context, the, the, the bit about the food, the different creatures. Peter isn't just being a fussy eater here. He's not just scooping his fresh lizards underneath the table for the dogs to eat. He, he's being a devout Jew. He's following the law as God has given it. Look in Leviticus chapter 11 with me. It says, 
You may eat any animal that has completely split hooves and chews the cud. You may not, however, eat the following animals that have split hooves or that chew the cud, but not both. The animal, or the, I'm sorry, the camel chews the cud, but does not have split hooves, so it is ceremonially unclean for you. And this list starts with a camel and goes on and on and on with a list of fish and birds and bugs and all these creatures that the Israelite people were to keep off of the dinner plate. So, when Peter is speaking back to God, he's only speaking back to God what God has already spoken to his people. He is reminding God of the law that God gave himself. He's giving God his words back in his face. And he's probably thinking, how are we going to be the purified people of God if we don't obey the purity laws that you gave us? What Peter doesn't yet understand is that the purity of this people was not dependent on the laws. It was dependent on the pure, spotless Lamb of God who was sacrificed for them on the cross. The story doesn't leave us wondering for very long what the vision means. It goes on to say this. Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. And meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. That's scary. <laughs> Imagine you see this crazy vision and you wake up and you're like, man, what does that mean? And the Spirit's like, I'll tell you what it means. You see those three guys outside? They're waiting for you. I sent them. <laughs> It says, get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter has an option. He has a decision. He has a choice to make. Either he's going to fear. He's going to say, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. He can be like, uh, like that kid from the magic school bus who's like, oh, I shouldn't have gone to school. I knew I should have stayed home today. Like that kid. He could be like that. Or he could follow without hesitation. He goes down, he follows, and he meets the men and they tell him about Cornelius, they tell him about what happened with the angel and how they had been sent to bring Peter back with them to Cornelius to give him a special message. Now, for the introverts in the room like me, you may be reading this and you think, does this mean that God will send me people that I can then preach the gospel to? I don't have to go find them. They'll just come and knock on my door. No, you have to go out. I'm sorry. I know it's more convenient just to have people knock on your door. Actually, it might be a little bit scary. <laughs> um, but this is a special occasion. Now, also, I think the place that they're going is worth mentioning. They're going to Caesarea. In Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, we've already seen the, the place, the town of Caesarea come up. Philip and later Paul have both already been to Caesarea. So as Cornelius is sending out these people, he's already had people in his town who are believers. So the question is, why didn't the Holy Spirit nudge him then, when there were people right there that could have brought him to Jesus? People who are proclaiming the message in his own city. Maybe this is a little bit more about Peter than it is about Cornelius. So with that in mind, when Peter finally arrives at Cornelius' house, Cornelius has gathered all of his family, all of his friends, basically everybody he knows it sounds like, or at least everybody he's close to, 
and he's waiting excitedly for them. It's like a surprise party. And it says, as Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. How many of you guys have been to a surprise party where somebody falls down and worships you? That would be, that'd be a little off-putting. <laughs> I don't know, some of you might like it, and that's, that, we can talk about that another time. It says, but Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So the good news is that Cornelius probably isn't going to have too hard of a time swallowing the pill that God became man in Jesus Christ. He was willing to worship Peter with no questions asked. So they go inside, and it says, Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. That's harsh. <laughs> That's a harsh open to the conversation, isn't it? Imagine trying that at a dinner party. You walk in, you hand them a bottle of wine. You're like, just so you remember, I'm not supposed to be here hanging out with people like you, right? But also, Peter wasn't wrong. In Ezra chapter 9, Verse 11, for example, it says this. The land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. Wow. And he says, he ties it to their prosperity. He says, if you follow these instructions, you'll be strong. You'll enjoy the good things that the land has to produce, and you'll leave this prosperity to your children forever. So basically, if you want things to go well for you, stay away from the Gentiles. And so while it wasn't against the law technically for them to associate with the Gentiles, it, it, and the word that Peter uses here is not against the law. It's, it's more like uh, against custom or unacceptable, right? It was definitely frowned upon. It was not something that the Jews would have been excited about to hear. After all, if you go into a Gentile's home, you might end up marrying their daughter, and then that, everything's lost, right? So. <laughs> so Peter goes on saying this. But God has shown me. So remember what he just said. I don't, we don't associate with you people. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Now tell me why you sent for me. So Peter has connected the dots. He figured out what this vision meant. The creatures weren't the food. It's the Gentiles. The creatures symbolize the Gentiles. Bring in that which is unclean. So in response to this, Cornelius fills in the backstory for Peter. He gives him the whole lay of the land about the angel, about the special message that he's about to be told by Peter. Imagine going to someone's house and they're like, you have a message for us, right? Right? You, you came with the speech prepared? Oh, geez. And he finishes by saying this. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message that the Lord has given you. Talk about pressure. And you can almost feel the anticipation in the air at Cornelius' house. Family members and friends and children all gathered around, eyes fixed on Peter, waiting, eagerly waiting. And Peter, when he sees this, says this, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him 
and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God's heart was now clear to Peter. And being the good apostle that he was, recalling the Great Commission, he began laying out the gospel, the whole story, from John the Baptist preaching repentance to the resurrected Jesus, instructing the apostles to go and preach to all nations this new gospel of the resurrected king. And as if Peter and Cornelius, both having visions and the crazy timing of it all, wasn't enough to prove that God is working in and through all of this, it then says this in verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Wow, it's like another Pentecost. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. What a cool moment. And again, Peter understood the assignment. And being a faithful disciple, remembering Jesus' final words in the Great Commission, he proclaims, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the same Holy Spirit as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the Peter... This is cool. So the Peter who once cowered before a Roman soldier when asked about Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed is now speaking boldly to this Roman soldier about who Jesus is. To the first Roman soldier, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And now to the second soldier, to Cornelius, he's saying that knowing Jesus is what it's all about because he's Lord of all. To the first Roman soldier, Peter let his fear crowd out his faith. But we see the exact opposite when he's talking to the second Roman soldier. His faith crowds out his fear. But it's at this point that we see this very happy story, this great moment, this joyous moment, become a little bit rocky. Our hero, as he's going back, to Jerusalem meets some resistance for this little foray into Gentile territory. In chapter 11, we read this. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them? So Peter is standing at the threshold of a decision point, another one. As the first father of a new covenant people, he's the one leading this thing. The Lord has called Peter to feed his sheep. This Peter has become the rock on which Christ is building up his church. And here he's making a decision that could make or break the future that the church has. The Spirit is pushing Peter to embrace the Gentiles, to expand the kingdom to everyone in the world, preaching the gospel to everyone. The Spirit is, in a sense, telling Peter to give up the exclusive Jewishness of the church's faith. But Peter is a Jew. He's mostly lived with Jews. The faith up until this point, the church up until this point, is a Jewish faith with Jewish Messiah with a group of Jewish apostles, Jewish disciples, meeting in Jewish synagogues on Jewish soil. 
This was no small move. Peter had to be wondering as he walked back from Caesarea what this massive change in the mission and makeup of the church would mean for all of those Jewish believers that he was coming back to. Were they going to understand why he let these Gentiles in? Would they be on board with this? Would they believe that the Spirit was really behind this? Would they believe his testimony? Or would they walk away? Would they call him crazy and maybe even split the church over it? And it's here that as I was studying, I began to see something of a worthwhile comparison to another story that we see uh, this time in the Old Testament. There's, there's another first father that we read of in the Bible that had a similar decision point that he stood at the threshold of, an, a similar fork in the road. We find his story around 2,000 years before Peter's story, 4,000 years before us. The decision point comes to us in these haunting words in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I'm thinking here of Abraham, Father Abraham. And just like Peter, Abraham was called by the Lord to father a covenant people. It was Abraham who was the rock on which God built his people Israel. And it was Abraham's people that would become the blessing to all nations that we are seeing laid out in Acts 10 through 11. Here, as Abraham looks at the boy that God gave him in his old age, a miracle of miracles, a, a boy that he waited decades for, he's told by the same God to take this child, the child that the covenant is riding on, and to kill him on Mount Moriah. This doesn't make sense. He didn't under, I'm sure he couldn't have understood. These commands were, were both for Peter and Abraham, commands that seemed to go against what they understood of God. They challenged the character that they had learned of God. And it wasn't just risky for them. It was risky for everyone who came after them as well. If Peter was mistaken, and he really hadn't heard from God, and he had brought all the Gentiles into the church in this move, he'd be deluding and, and, and confusing the mission and makeup of the church for generations to come. He'd be screwing up the church. And if Abraham had misunderstood, if he was mistaken and God really wasn't calling him to this, then he was about to kill his only child, and the child that the entire covenant was riding on. So in both, they have the power to crush the covenants that have been offered them. This is a, a massive amount of risk. Both, had to, both of them had to decide whether they would follow, even though they didn't understand why. Even though they were maybe even uncomfortable, or better said, terrified, by what their obedience would bring about. 
But we see in both of them that above all, they trust in God's faithfulness, despite their rational minds maybe screaming at them to let the commandment pass, to let things be as they are. It would be so much easier for them to just remain as they are, for Abraham to just keep Isaac at home, for Peter to remain at home, or to go back on what he did with the Gentiles and just keep things how they are. And just as Abraham owned his decision and began his ascent to Mount Moriah, so we see Peter also owning his decision. And he says this in Acts chapter 11, verse 5. I was in the town of Joppa, and while I was praying, I went into a trance, and I saw a vision. He goes on to tell what had happened from his vision to the three visitors, to Cornelius and the angel, to the Holy Spirit dousing all of the Gentiles in the room. And just as the Lord was faithful to send Abraham back from Moriah with his son following close behind, the Lord was also faithful to send Peter home with the church still following him close behind. The Jewish believers, it says, they stopped their criticism and began praising God, saying in verse, 11, or verse 18, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. And just, just for a moment, most of the people in this room are Gentiles. So that's us. We're here because of this. So for both, yeah, well, let's do that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So for both Peter and Abraham, the Lord was faithful to bring peace and blessing through their obedience, but it was through obedience to something they did not understand. Um, there are a couple of old dead Christian writers who stressed a principle that I want to lay out here. I think it's on display in this story. I think it's in display in the Abraham story. I think it's in display on a ton of other stories in Scripture. And that, dis that principle is this. Faith-seeking understanding, or you don't need to understand, you need to believe, you need to obey. One of these old dead guys named Anselm argued that it's not from the hilltops of human reason that we begin when we try to understand God. We don't, we don't go to our reasoning first because God will evade our reasoning. We start like a simple child in faith, trusting and going without questioning. We are not wise men in this situation. We're children. And that's what I want you all here to grapple with today. Anselm said it this way, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. God doesn't want your arguments. He doesn't want your protests or your critique or your feedback. He wants obedience. So the big idea today, you can bring it back again. You don't need to understand. You just need to obey. And through your obedience, you will come to understand. God will show you. Both Abraham and Peter, looking back, understood. But they couldn't understand until they took the leap of faith that God was calling them to. Um, Abraham and Peter, we see, did not begin by analyzing what God was calling them to. They didn't believe, or, or I'm sorry, they didn't pontificate, they didn't critique. They were given a command, and they followed. 
And it all made sense, but only after that leap of faith. When faith seeks understanding and not the other way around, God is seen as more trustworthy than our own understanding. When we believe without seeing, just like Jesus says to Thomas um, after the resurrection, we're saying that the only thing that we need to understand is that God truly loves us. And we believe that, and we'll hold firm to that, and he will not leave us. We trust in God with all our heart, and we lean not on our own understanding. Does that sound familiar? Good. We trust in him and not in ourselves. We don't need to understand, we just need to obey. So then, what about us, Sunrise, here today, online? Are these stories that we can't imitate? Are they myths or legends that we can only marvel at, tell to our children in the, in the storybook Bibles, and then put them down and walk away? If faith like this is only for Abraham, if it's only for Peter, then these are just strange stories, like the stories of Joan of Arc or the Trojan horse, stories to be amazed by, stories to retell, but not stories to follow not stories to read into our own lives. Surely none of us will be dealing with a matter quite as serious as both of these men did. None of us are going to be the first fathers of God's people like them. At least that's what I think. I've met some of you, and, and I've met myself, and I don't think any of us are up to the task. <laughs> but certainly faith like this is not just for them. Maybe we don't hear God speak to us in visions or have visits from angels but we have the Spirit, and if we listen, we might just hear the Spirit whisper to us or scream at us <laughs> through the Scriptures or through a brother or sister in Christ, and we know it's God talking to us, pulling us to do something that doesn't make sense, but we know God is in it. We can see the traces of his work and his, and his voice in it. I'm reminded of what Jesus says. My sheep will, will hear my voice and they'll know it. They'll know my voice when they hear it. Yes. Now, as someone who's struggled with intrusive and um, unwanted thoughts in the past, I'm not telling you to just follow whatever your head's telling you to do. I'm not telling you to just listen to the voice inside your head. That would be bad advice. I, our, our head is responsible for coming up with dreams, and man, dreams are really, really weird. Um, you know, like just like my sister is Jennifer Aniston, I think, and, and we're in the grocery store. Like, they're just weird. Like, you don't have to follow those. But I think that if we have a pulling or a tugging on our heart that rings true to the voice of Christ in the scriptures, that sound of the voice, it sounds like the voice uh, that first called to us when we first believed, then at that moment, we face the same fork in the road Peter and Abraham stood at. And we have to decide, am I going to lean on my understanding or am I going to lean on my faith? Am I going to lean on myself or am I going to lean on God? Which is more dependable? And Peter teaches us that it's better to rely on God, that we don't have to understand, we just have to obey. I'll bet many of you have had encounters with this sort of calling. Maybe you've even felt a call here in this room before. Um, or maybe you, you've been passing by somebody um, in need, and you've thought to yourself, man, 
I know what Jesus says about people in need, and I think I could be the one to grant this need. Or maybe you are in a conversation with somebody you know who doesn't believe in Jesus, and you're like, maybe I'm the person to introduce them to Jesus. Or maybe you're, like I said, in this very room, and you hear something we're talking about, about pursuing or furthering the kingdom, and you think, maybe he's talking to me. Maybe I'm the person that needs to, to listen and to, and to join in to that small group or to that service ministry or whatever it is. Maybe it's me that I, I need to do this. But then maybe you picture yourself doing it. You, you imagine. And then all of the thoughts of like, well, that won't work because of this. Well, that, that, this might go wrong. What if this goes wrong? What if they think this about me? And then you let it pass. I'll get it next week. And it never comes again. The opportunity is gone. I know that I've had many moments in this room where I've had an opportunity slip through my fingers to follow Jesus. A moment where I could have had my faith come over my fear and I just let it, I let it go. Um, I think that, that that picture that we receive is very similar to Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter himself went through this very thing. He knew what it meant to hear the call of Christ and to deny him, to disobey, to walk away. And so I don't want to miss the opportunity to speak to the gospel in this moment, or to speak the gospel in this moment, speak to the grace side of this. Um, for us that are like Peter, who, who, for those of you like me who, who are um, sometimes covered in fear or shame at the moments that we've missed, it's for that that Christ died. Uh, it's Peter's sin and his heart that led him to it. That's the very thing that brought Jesus to the cross. It was for our weakness. It was for our selfishness. It's for our unfaithfulness, for our desire to know everything. It's for our sin that Jesus went willingly to hang on the tree. Christ became on the cross our distrust. He embodied our sin our flesh that was rivaling against God, and he killed it. It has no claim over us. His victory is not because of us. It's not because of what we did. It's not because of our help. The only way we helped him was by putting him up on the tree. Rather, this self-humbling for our sakes is despite us, but for us. The first and final move is always made by Jesus on Calvary. So when, like Peter, we lean on our own understanding and not on Christ, and we feel those waves of guilt and fear envelop us, may the Spirit always guide us back to the eternal truth of Christ and Christ crucified, sin and death defeated for us on the cross. We're free from sin and death, and as long as we look to the cross, there's healing. But we can't stop there. Those like me also need to be reminded of what Christ does in us, through his spirit, he's transforming us into himself. He's in us. We are in him. We are his body. But a body listens to the head. It follows. It obeys the head. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says this. For we are God's masterpiece. He has, created, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's hard to be in Jesus and not look like Jesus. The same spirit that led Jesus to be obedient 
even to the sake of the, or to the, to the point of the cross, is in us, leading us to obedience. He doesn't lead us into perfect understanding. He's not there to teach us all of the perfect, um, like he's not making us omniscient. He's leading us to faith, leading us to obedience, to surrender, to trust. Jesus doesn't need us to understand. He needs us to obey. So in Peter's unfaithfulness, this is cool. So in Peter's unfaithfulness, he's forgiven and he's drawn closer to Jesus. And then in Peter's faith in this story, he was strengthened and drawn closer to Jesus. Through the cross, our sin points us back to Jesus. And then through the resurrection, our obedience points us back to Jesus. In the end, it all points us back to Jesus. You can't escape him. He is in all and through all, and in him we live, move, and have our being. You can't escape him. In forgiveness, he unites us with himself, and he takes our sin. In obedience, we unite ourselves with him and take on his cross. So maybe you feel like Peter after the first sold, talking to the first soldier. You feel the shame, you feel the fear, you feel the guilt. Or maybe you feel today like uh, the, the Peter that was talking to Cornelius, strong, willing to move forward, trusting in God's providence. But every day that you face this world, the question will be posed to you, will you obey even when you don't understand? Let's pray. Spirit of God, we are willing, but our flesh is often weak. We stand in opposition to you. We do not want what you want for us. We can't see it. Uh, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis says about um, a child who is, is content making mud pies, and when his parents want to bring him to the beach, he, he doesn't want to leave uh, his, his mud pies because it's all he knows is good. Christ, you are calling us to a much better existence, but the only way that we'll get there is through obedience. So Lord, push us, argue with us, scream at us, make it so clear to us what we must do so that there is no other option for us but to obey. In your name we pray, amen.